Uh, you're going to want to turn to Luke chapter 1. Yeah, Luke chapter 1. Um, really long chapter. We're going to do a little bit of it today. Uh, Happy New Year, by the way. Um, I, yeah, I know it's not. It depends which calendar, you know. I mean, I know you've got friends that are on the Julian calendar and friends are on the Julian calendar. So it's a common mistake, I'm sure. Uh, but the church calendar begins today. Uh, it's not January 1st, but in the liturgical calendar... Uh, begins with Advent, which consists of four Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve. And uh, today is the first Sunday of the church year, and of course the first Sunday of Advent. So, Happy New Year. We like new things, right? So if you get a chance to have two New Year's, then just take it. Just say thank you. Um, we, we all love new things, and I, I think, and I've said this before, I think we're, we're wired for uh, novelty in, in a certain way. We we're placed in an environment where the new follows the old. Uh, we look forward to the morning. Mornings follow night. Spring comes after winter. And the whole existence leans forward towards a new creation. Is all creation groaning? It is. Uh, we're looking forward to new creation, a new Jerusalem, new heavens, and a new earth. So happy new year. It's the first Sunday of Advent. Um, happy birthday. And that too. Yeah, happy happy birthday. Yeah, I coincided that with the church calendar, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I'll give a speech now. I have them prepared. That's uh, called the sermon. Uh, the, four, the four Sundays of Advent are them thematically arranged. The first Sunday of Advent, which is the first Sunday of the liturgical year, is about hope and faith, traditionally. The second week is for peace. The third, love. And the fourth, joy. Uh, unless you go to a church that doesn't do that, in which case other denominations have scrambled it up, and some say they're a little bit different. Uh, they have God's people, the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, and then Mary. So that's four. Or you can pick another four pieces of Christmas and go prophets, angels, shepherds, magi. So you've got some variety to work with. Um, but, but each uh, tradition, each uh, Christian tradition traced back, you know, shares uh, one thing, and that is a joyful longing and expectancy for... Advent, that literally means the arrival, the coming of Christ. Um, and we, we look forward to Christmas, to the coming of the Lord, where the Lord responds to our prayer, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and O come, thou long-expected Jesus, with the resounding, yeah, I'm here, I did, I came, here I am. And as the carol says, we, as we sing, the weary world rejoices, right? So this has been the tradition of the church, to place ourselves in a posture of hope, expectancy, anticipation, not just during Advent, but we kind of highlight it during this time of year. But always, we are a hoping people. We are an expecting people. Just as Israel anticipated their Messiah, not just for four weeks out of the year, but for years and years and years upon years, they anticipated a Savior. Just as Mary anticipated the birth of her son, we anticipate the, the coming of Christ. And we model ourselves after those who hoped well for his first coming. Um, in addition, during Advent, when we, when we cultivate this, this spirit of expectancy, um, we also prepare ourselves to make Christmas holy. 
uh, which doesn't happen naturally in case you've ever had Christmas um, or never had Christmas. Yeah, it doesn't happen by itself. But we sing, you know, we sing uh, Charles Wesley's, uh, you know, "Come Thou Long Expected Jesus," and we we sing, "By Thine Own Eternal Spirit in our hearts, a rule in our hearts alone." Um, so we we expect a real and future return of Christ in the flesh. We await the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's going to happen later. Uh, but we also know that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. And yes, we look back and we, we say Jesus came on Christmas, and I guess he could come this Christmas. Uh, December 25th is a fine day for the end of the world. I think that'd be, that'd be just dandy. Um, but, you know, he, he really came, really and actually. He is coming again, really and actually. And in the meanwhile, we expect his presence with us nonetheless. Advent, as I mentioned, literally means arrival. And there are truly three advents of Christ. He came in history. He will come again really and truly. And in the meanwhile, we can proclaim and believe that he is willing to come and be with us. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. So we set aside a season of Advent um, to do as joy to the world commands. Let every heart prepare him. So in order to do this... Uh, for the next four weeks, we're going to look at just some characters that show up in the Christmas story that you think of at least once a year. These are these are expert expectors. Okay, they're they're the people that are filled with hope and look they're looking forward to something um, that's important, and most of them look forward well. Uh, we're following them on a long walk to Jesus, and the first expector that we're going to look at this week is, is Zechariah, which is where Luke starts his Christmas story. Next week, we'll look at Joseph, one of my favorite guys. Um, that's where Matthew starts his Christmas story. Okay, so we're going to look at those two guys. And then we're going to look at the two women of the Christmas story, Elizabeth, and specifically John the Baptist in Euro. And then the fourth week of Advent, uh, the Sunday before Christmas, we'll look at Mary, the mother of Christ. And then, since Advent does go all the way to Christmas Eve, we're going to send you all to a Christmas Eve service, but it's not here. Um, we're, we're blessed to have uh, good relationships with other churches in the area. And our, our favorite is North Fork Christian Center. Um, so they're doing a Christmas Eve service and have invited us. So we're going to go there for Christmas Eve, and I'll let you know the time. I think you can figure out the date just by invitation. So you can all look forward to that. I'm looking forward to that, which is good, because Advent is sort of all about looking forward to things. That's kind of what we're here for. So turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, if you haven't already, and we're going to start in verse 5 and read uh, kind of a long section of this passage here. Um, we'll be reading through to verse 25. Uh, verse 5, it says, There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was the daughter of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. 
and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will, always, he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. And behold, but behold, you will be mute, and not able to speak until the day these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias, and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, where he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Already you can see a whole lot worth hoping for in this passage, right? Uh, I mean, the clear hope for Zacharias is the promise of a son that he had been looking forward to. Uh, but look what accompanies that promise. Zacharias hears the words that every praying person wants to hear. Your prayer is heard. It's like, well, thank you. I was beginning to wonder. In Advent, we anticipate answered prayers and celebrate answered prayers. The promise of joy and gladness in verse 14. It's not just personal uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's global even. Many will rejoice. And we know that the rejoicing would extend to every tribe, tongue, and nation. There will be a turning of hearts toward the Lord. The angel promises Zacharias an awakening, a revival. And then there's a restoration of broken relationships. There's the turning of fathers' hearts towards the children. These are things worth hoping for. Now, as you notice, Zechariah, Zacharias doesn't exactly come out of this story as the shining hero that uh, he would hope if he was going to be in a book that lasts for thousands of years. He's, he's a good guy, for sure. He's a good guy in this story, but he's not the best guy. He's described as righteous, blameless, keeping all the commandments, but he doubts. He lacks faith and is rebuked rather firmly for this doubt. As we cultivate hope in our hearts... In the season of Advent, we have to guard against this skepticism, the incredulity of Zacharias. Because God says, here I come. He says, blessings are on the way. I'm pouring them out on you in ways you don't expect, in ways you couldn't have imagined. I'm pouring them out on you and for you and everyone around you. More than you have ever hoped for. And we must repent of the heart reaction of saying, yeah, but really? Zacharias doubts in such a way that, he, that it earns him the angelic rebuke of verse 20 when Gabriel says, you did not believe. <coughs> Listen, God has promised to meet with people. The promise of Emmanuel, God with us, still stands. That's still his name. The promise of the Holy Spirit who will lead us into all truth and ministers to, the heart, ministers to us the heart of Christ. That promise still stands. The promise of Jesus to be with us always, never to leave us, to shepherd us. All that is on the table for you, ready to be received through faith. The lesson of Zacharias, if you want just a real simple one, is don't you dare doubt. When God says he's going to bless, 
Just say thank you. <laughs> Don't raise the faithless objection. Hebrews 11, verse 6, you know, the faith chapter, it's all about faith. You're probably familiar with it. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In order to please God, the service you offer God, okay, that you offer him your worship and your praise, it is your faith in him that he wants to bless you. When you go to him and says, yes, I believe you have good things for me, that's your gift to Christ. You can't go to him without that attitude. So let's, let's have this be our goal in developing our hope. Let us seek to please God by, by believing that he is the kind of God who is eager to bless us as we come to him. Zacharias does have some faith, and I expect you do as well. I'm sure you wouldn't be here without a measure of it. Zacharias believes God. He keeps the commandments. He worships God. He's called a righteous and just man. Uh, he wishes for a son, but when God says that he's giving him what he wishes for, and so much more, so, so much more, Zacharias takes a step back and reveals the weakness of his faith. He believes that the blessings of God are really too good to be true. Now, as Advent teaches us and prepares us for the incarnation, God made flesh, we have to learn that the blessings of God in Christ are indeed too good. Uh, they're, they're too good for us to make up. <coughs> they're, they're too good for you to just pretend. They're too good for that, but they're, they're not too good to be truth, because the supreme good of the universe is God, who took on flesh and said, I am the truth. If you take anything home with you today other than don't you dare doubt, let it include this simple thing. It is the will of God to bless you. It is his plan to bless you in Christ. And it is most certainly within his rights and capabilities to bless you even beyond what you are willing to receive by your own weak faith. Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it. Let's look at a few verses in Luke 1 so we can better understand this character. In verse 6 and 7, I'm going to read them again. It says, they were both righteous before God, this is Zechariah and Elizabeth, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. Now you see that they were righteous and just and kept the commandments, and that's not the same thing as faith, is it? Now at the, at the beginning I said that we're wired in some way with this desire for newness, where we're placed in a world of built-in rhythms, where new follows old like spring, following winter. That's God's design. Resurrection wasn't an afterthought or an emergency procedure. It was the plan of creation since creation and before. God made seed-bearing trees before he made people. And seeds have to die in order to bear fruit. That's what Jesus says, not just gardening. <laughs> Things are buried in order to give the fruit of resurrection. That's always been the way it is. Resurrection has always been the plan. We don't always like winter, though. We don't always like barrenness. Now, a great amount of ink has been spilled in telling people that back then it would have been really hard for a couple not to have kids. And I always cringe a little bit and roll my eyes the way this is generally presented because it's not back then. Infertility is hard now. That's never not been hard. It's a sorrow. It's a loss. It's something to be grieved. Now, it's true that in other eras, the cultures may have, been, may have seen this as a curse from God, which would not be accurate. We would definitely take a big step back from that. But is, it any, is the era in which they saw this as a deep sorrow, is that, is that better or worse than today's insensitive culture 
that would look at a childless couple as blessed because they can travel. How painful, right? How painful for the mother who notices every stroller and car seat and try to be told that it's easier for her because she can get a good night's sleep. We got it all backwards. Um, we got it all backwards when we say that those conveniences outweigh the blessings of life. At least for Elizabeth, there would have been perhaps some friends, some family, maybe like Mary, who would have known to mourn with those who mourned. And we can be confident of this. Zacharias and Elizabeth would have mourned the loss of that which they never had. Um, but God is still operating in rhythms of hope and resurrection, pre, uh, resurrection flowing out of death. Where spring comes out of winter and early flowers shoot up with snow still on the ground, right? That's the way he's always been doing things. God has been making empty things in order to fill up those empty things. Since the beginning, literally since the creation of the world, which was formless and void, if you can remember that far back. And then it was filled with order and light. He created sky and sea, empty. Then he filled them with fish and birds. He created man out of dust, an empty shell made of dirt, and then filled, them, filled him with the breath of God. When God has an armful of blessings that he's eager to put down somewhere, he does not look for a cluttered place. He looks for an empty container. He is drawn to the void. In his generosity, he looks to the vacant in order to make crooked ways straight and cause streams to flow in the desert. He always fills up empty things, which means he's searching for empty things. This has always been the way he does it. It's a story of Zacharias and Elizabeth, of course, is an echo of another couple that you know you should all be thinking about Abraham and Sarah, right? Another older couple without children who God chose to fill with joy and laughter, literally laughter, they named him Isaac, in order to bring joy and rejoicing to the whole world, the same thing that he's doing here with Zacharias and Elizabeth. When we get to Mary, we'll see another kind of emptiness, a holy emptiness, a purity that God delights to fill up miraculously with Christ. Zacharias and Elizabeth, being an empty people, are exactly the kind of people that attract the blessings of the Lord. Please take hold of this. In verse 9 it says that Zacharias was chosen by lot to burn incense in the temple of the Lord. So he's of the, of the order of Abijah. That's kind of like his company of priests. And so they would have a time of year, you know, a few weeks, where they would go and serve in the temple. Uh, and then the rest of the time they would serve you know, out of, you know, in their, in their local areas, okay? So this is his time, his, his company's time to go and serve in the temple, but at, at this time, incense was burned twice a day, uh, each only by one priest, and by many estimate, estimates, there were upward of 20,000 priests at this time. If that's the case, and if they all took turns, each priest would go into the temple every 27 years. That's your turn. But they didn't take turns, they threw dice. Um, so, which is way better. So, uh, he's there, and they, they cast lots among all the, the priests of Abijah, and, and Zacharias gets to go into the temple, into the holy place, and burn incense on the golden altar of incense, which represents the prayers of the people. Needless to say, this was an experience of a lifetime. Um, for Zacharias to be chosen is a big deal. So he would have prepared himself. He would have washed. He would have been inspected by his other priests. He would have, uh, everyone would have made sure he was ceremonially clean because they wouldn't want to offend the holy God. A rope would have been tied to him. This was a tradition that took place, interestingly enough. You kind of wonder the backstory. But uh, a rope would have been tied to him in case he went into God's presence with uncleanness and God decided to kill him. 
then they could just drag him out without having to send another guy in there, and then you got a pile, and then it, you know, it's a problem. So, so yeah, so he's got this rope, okay? He's got bells on his on his priestly garments that you can read about in Leviticus. So everyone can kind of hear if he stops or if he falls over. Uh, so he would have taken the incense, which represented the prayers of the entire nation, and he goes to the golden altar. And while he is performing this task, by the book, for sure, something happens that's not by the book, which is Gabriel shows up. And Zechariah, Zechariah is terrified. Terrified for two reasons. One, angels are scary. That seems pretty consistent across the board with people's experiences with angels. And then number two, he's got that rope around him for a reason. Remember? Like, he's in the temple very mindful of his own mortality. And he's on holy ground. And if he messes up, there's consequences. There's Bible verses in his Bible that say, don't draw near. And he's like, I did though. I did draw near. Like, I'm, I'm past. I'm, I'm past the veil. Here I am. And then he sees this big, scary angel directly to his right, and he's thinking, this is the end. This is too holy for me. Now, in the Bible, there's good fear and there's bad fear. The good fear, the fear of the Lord, drives you towards the Lord. The bad fear drives you from the Lord. If the angel is telling you, don't be afraid, you can be pretty confident that he's saying, don't be afraid that way. Don't, be, don't have the bad fear. The fear that involves torment, the perfect love drives out. Don't be afraid of this thing. Zacharias, in the presence of holiness, is afraid. He has a right to be. But everything is changed now with Christ. Not the holiness of God. That's still cranked up to 11. Okay? But now we are told, draw near. Draw near to the throne. Yes, he's holy, but he wants you up there anyway. The God who dwells in unapproachable light says, approach anyway. And Zechariah's big lesson is essentially that God wants to bless him more than he thought was possible. He would have thought, like many saints before and since, that if he got too close to God, or if God got too close to him, if a line was crossed, he'd be gone. That would be the end. What Zacharias must learn, what we must learn if we want to follow him, is the truth of Emmanuel. God is with us. He intends to be close, very close, extremely close. Our God intends to dwell with us. And the angel says, don't be afraid. This is God's plan. The curtain is going to be torn. The dividing wall of hostility is breaking down. The wall between God and man. You're being drawn into eternal places now. That's the plan. He says, don't be afraid. And then he says, your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. These things are said so closely together. Many have speculated that Zacharias, while praying the official liturgy and exactly what he was supposed to say in there that was written and praying, and it also brought his own personal prayer request out of his back pocket. And he's like, also, like a son would be nice. Like now that I'm closer to God, now that I know he's listening, like what's the one thing you want to ask for? So it could be that he's there doing his priestly duties and he's, he's thinking about not having a son. And then this, this angel says, no, your prayer is heard and you're going to have a son. So if he's praying about his childlessness, about Elizabeth's barrenness, or at least maybe just her sorrow, maybe he's just praying, just comfort her. Maybe he's beyond praying, give us a son, because of course that ship has sailed. They're old folks now, you know? But he's saying, we're sad. Can you give us something for that? And he's like, oh, yeah, his name's John. I'll definitely give you something for that. He brings his sorrow to the Lord, and Gabriel says, your prayer is heard, you're having a baby. And then, as I already mentioned, the angel promises to Zechariah far more than he or his wife could have ever thought to ask for. I'm going to read from verse 14 again. It says, you'll have joy and gladness, 
and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. They would have a son. Already a miracle. Already really cool. But it's not just that. They would have a great son. Their son, John, would be called by Jesus the greatest man who ever lived in Matthew 11, verse 11. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit, not once he's old enough to understand it, not once he finished seminary or he walked up to the altar call or something, but from his mother's womb, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And he would bring Israel back to Israel's God. He would make a people ready to see the Lord. These are great blessings indeed. But implied in them is an even greater blessing promised. If John is going to be the one who prepares the way of the Lord, or make ready a people, prepare for the Lord, then that means once that preparation is finished, who's coming? The Lord. Zacharias is just given a very important piece of prophetic information. God is on his way. He's getting ready to come and be with his people. Now Zacharias is going to have a bit of a difficult time with this which may seem reasonable. He's in grand company. You'll remember Sarah's response to the same, right? She laughed at God. And then God made her name her son laughter just to rub it in on her. <laughs> but something's going on in Luke, okay? Um, so Luke is very mindful of uh, what he's doing. He didn't just jot some notes down and send it to the publisher and hope it would stick, you know? He, he's writing things on purpose. Now, we're not going to talk about Mary's story until the fourth Sunday of Advent, but Luke spends more time on Mary's narrative than the other three Gospels do. And you'll see parallels immediately between Zechariah and Elizabeth and then Joseph and Mary. Specifically, Zechariah and Mary. Those are the ones that have the spotlight on them. In both cases, you have angelic announcements. Both births are miraculous. Elizabeth is barren, Mary is a virgin. You have emptiness in both cases that God intends to fill. In both cases, the angel tells what the name of the baby will be. And, of course, the connection between Jesus and John was very apparent. John would prepare the way for Jesus. And Zacharias and Mary are very similar in their experiences and very similar in their responses. Zechariah and Mary both ask similar questions. Zechariah asks, how shall I know this? Mary asks, how can this be? But only Zacharias is rebuked and punished and you can see a little difference between the phrasing of the two statements, but for the deeper difference, you have to read on. Gabriel rebukes Zacharias not because he asked a question, but because there's no faith in his heart. It says, but behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Mary, however, when she encounters Elizabeth later on in the same chapter, in chapter 1 of Luke, She's greeted with this phrase in verse 45, Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Zacharias wasn't rebuked for asking his question. He was rebuked for his lack of faith. Mary asked questions too, but hers were asked from faith. Let it be done to me according to your word. You can ask God questions both ways. What matters is how you ask them. What matters is that you ask them in faith. Once again, I'll remind you of Hebrews 11. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. He who comes to God must believe that he is. 
Well, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Zacharias doubted the reward. Mary believed in the reward. Now, there are times when God withholds blessing in response to our withholding of faith. We read those baffling words in the Gospels where Jesus in Nazareth says he couldn't do many signs in Nazareth because of their lack of faith. We kind of scratch our heads at that a little bit. But to counter those stories that almost seem to show God being limited by faith as a simple equation, like his hands are tied, we have stories like this to lift the hope of the hopeless. Zacharias didn't believe. How did that limit God? It didn't at all. Did it limit Zacharias? Yeah. Yeah, it did. It was probably really frustrating for a lot of people. But he was, you know, he was made mute until the fulfillment of God's promise, but the promise still came. Better than he could have hoped for. Advent is about hope, especially this first week of Advent. And perhaps we need to receive the gentle rebuke of the Lord that we just don't know how to be hopeful. That we are a people of small faith, of weak faith. You know, let's repent of this if we need to. Let's confess that we have a small perspective, a weak idea of how God is, how much God is willing to do for us. And then when we've come to this place of honesty, let us rejoice that God does not only bless in accordance to our faith, but far, far beyond it. In Isaiah chapter 55, there's this line that you all know, you've memorized this verse, probably, probably misused it a dozen times. Um, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know these verses. Usually when, we're re when someone reminds themselves of these verses, what kind of situation are they in? They're confused, right? Or they're in a place where they're uncomfortable, and they are very mindful that if they were in charge, they would do things differently around here. And perhaps what God appears to be doing is making them a bit uncomfortable, right? And then they say, you know, you look at the situation, and it's not what you'd like, so you say, well, his ways are not my ways. His thoughts aren't my He's doing something different. That's how we use these verses, right? That is misapplying these verses. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 55, you would see that this is a chapter all about God having mercy on sinners and blessing those that don't deserve any blessing for free. The verse before, it's Isaiah 55, verse 7. It says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Then he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Well, then what are our thoughts? Our thoughts are ones of payment, retribution, stinginess. Sinners are punished. The righteous are rewarded, but not too much. God will bless in sensible, measurable doses. Nothing too extravagant. His ways aren't like your ways. But the whole chapter is like this in Isaiah 55. Go home and read Isaiah 55 at least once this week. See what I'm talking about. It's this chapter that begins, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. These are thoughts higher than our thoughts. We think in terms of payment, debt, retribution, what we deserve, God thinks about grace and freedom and how much he can give. We say, get what you can afford. God says, come and take it for free as much as you want. I just hope you're hungry. I look for empty places to fill things. I just hope you're hungry. I've got a lot, a lot to give. Isaiah 55 continues. It says, listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. These are 
higher than our ways. This is beyond what we could ask, think, or imagine. We, like Zacharias, would say, would you really bless me this much? Would you really bless me with so great a salvation? Are you interested in giving me good things, or are you just interested in building my character through trials, as I suspect you are sometimes? And God says, listen diligently to me. I have good things for you. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Isaiah 55 ends like this. It says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This bit about the thorn being replaced. This is a direct prophecy to the Messiah who would undo the curse of the garden where thorns come from. Jesus would take on a crown of thorns, actually take on the curse on himself in order to undo the curse itself. And until the day when all thorns and their scratches are uprooted, healed, and undone, Paul says that the whole creation groans for redemption. What kind of groan do you suppose that is? Um, I don't think it's a regret because nature isn't the center in this formula. I don't think it's a hopelessness because we're looking forward to redemption. And then we say, your redemption, you know, look up for your redemption draws near. What if creation is leaning forward to the day and making the same sound, the same appreciative groan of a hungry person who just had their favorite meal placed before them and you know what's coming? In Advent, we cultivate our sense of hope. And we confess how small our hopes usually are, how truly hopeless our hearts tend to be. So we cultivate this hope by following Zacharias to a place where the Lord says, I'm going to bless you more than you think I can. And we learn from his faithlessness, the mirror that we hold up and maybe find ourselves in. And we determine in our hearts to believe that when God says, my ways are higher than your ways, he's saying, I bless more than you think I do. Paul picks up this thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 9. He says, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. God has said he will bless his people. God has declared that he will be with his people. Again, we sing, is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? The answer is, it is. So we return to our admonition from Gabriel, don't you dare doubt. Expect these great things from the God who blesses richly. Happy New Year. Let's pray. God, we look to you and we won't be overcome because your blessings are more than just what comes in accordance with our weak faith. We pray, like the disciples did, increase our faith. We pray that we have eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But we, we confess now that you, you bless more than we think you can. You intend to bless more than we think you're willing to. And we thank you for these things. We thank you that in Christ are every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We have access to these things. That there is no shortage of grace to go around. That you're not stingy that you're not withdrawn, 
that you are generous, overabundant in your generosity. Bless us, not only with the good things that you want to give us, but bless us with the hunger and thirst after these kinds of righteousness. Bless us with uh, an awareness of our emptiness and a willingness to be filled. In Jesus' name, amen.